Let me ask you to take out your Bibles and open with me to the book of Joel. The book of Joel. Uh, there in, in the Minor Prophets, a short book between Hosea and Amos. Tonight we're coming to our final study on this subject of repentance. We have spent a great deal of time emphasizing how important repentance is in each of our lives. You can't be a Christian without repentance. And it's not something you do once. It's, it's part and parcel of the Christian life. But repentance is not always just an individual thing. It can be corporate. The Bible records many examples of groups of people repenting together. And tonight I want us to look at that subject. So we have Joel. Um, It's a book of only three chapters. In this book, Judah is suffering from a severe drought, as well as from a plague of locusts that is causing famine in the land. And this is no sheer accident of nature. God's sovereign hand is behind these events. He is bringing judgment upon His people because of their wickedness. And the prophet Joel comes to the people of God and calls them to corporate repentance, to repentance as a nation for their sin. Now tonight we are going to read two passages from the book of Joel. Uh, I want us to begin in chapter 1 with verse 13. Chapter 1 with verse 13. So let's begin there. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And now move ahead to chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. 
Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him. A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? And then the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. So let me begin by addressing the nature of corporate repentance. The the nature of corporate repentance. What, What can we say about this thing called corporate repentance? Well, first, every corporate entity, no matter how small or how large, has reason to repent. So when I speak of a corporate entity, I simply mean any group of two or more people that are united together as one. So marriage is a corporate entity. Your family is a corporate entity. This church is a corporate entity. Nash County, the state of North Carolina, United States of America, These are all corporate entities. These are people bound together in some way. In marriage and family and church, we are bound together by covenant. In our county, state, and country, we're bound together by government, constitution, and citizenship. Uh, Partners in business can form an entity. They're they're bound together by their vested interest in the company being successful. We could go on and on in examples of these kinds of, of corporate entities. But every one of them has reason to repent. Married couples have reason to repent together. Families have reason to repent together. Churches have reason to repent Together, and certainly communities and nations have reason to repent together. Why? Well, first and foremost, because we're all guilty of sin. Yes, all of us as individuals are sinners, but when sinners come together with other sinners in any kind of unity, in any kind of partnership, the result is a sinful entity. Married couples not only sin as individuals, but sometimes they sin together. Maybe it's a marriage spat in which both act wickedly. Maybe it's one spouse indulges in a particular sin and the other spouse chooses to turn a blind eye and never says anything. Sometimes the man and wife together do something they shouldn't do watching an an inappropriate movie or making a foolish purchase or engaging together in demeaning conversation about someone else. 
There are a thousand ways that husbands and wives sin together, and therefore there should be times when husband and wife repent together. The same could be said for families. Sometimes it's the whole family participating in sin together. Sometimes it's a wrong attitude or a wrong practice that everyone in the family shares. Sometimes it's one member of the family acting sinfully, but the rest of the family responding sinfully. Same is true of churches and communities and nations. Every human entity we can speak up speak of needs to repent because each and every one is guilty of sin before God. On a national level, we see the sins of our nation. We see widespread violence. We see widespread unbelief towards God. We see the embrace of immorality and the mocking and demeaning of those who would stand up for what is right. We see the election of immoral and ungodly leaders. We see a failure to value human life and to protect it. We see a refusal to hold people accountable or to promote wisdom and responsibility. Our land is guilty of grave sins. And together, we ought to repent. But second, corporate entities have reason to repent because every entity requires God's blessing for success. So whether your goal is to have a holy and happy marriage or to raise godly children or to have a prosperous business or to care for your community through a local group or to govern a nation, the same principle holds true. You won't succeed without God's blessing. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. It's God who gives the sunshine and it's God who gives the rain and it's He who can withhold those. God brings seasons of flourishing and God brings seasons of famine. And as a general rule, God's practice is to bless those who humble themselves and draw near to Him. God's practice is to give His grace, His blessings to the humble. God's practice is to pour out benefits on those who would seek to follow Him and walk in His ways. Any entity that wants to be blessed by God should be about the work of regular humbling themselves before God and repenting. And then third, corporate entities have reason to repent because all are in danger of God's opposition. God opposes the proud. God opposes those who walk stiff-necked, refusing to follow His ways. This means that those who do not repent should expect God to be against them, should expect God to frustrate their plans. We should expect the curse of God when we live in sin. It is right for God to express His just displeasure towards pride and wickedness. He would not be a good God if He did anything other than that. And therefore, if we do not want the judgment of God or the discipline of God to come upon us as families or as a nation, we ought to repent. In His very first presidential inaugural address, George Washington 
said this, There is no truth more thoroughly established than there exists in the economy and course of nature an indissoluble union between virtue and happiness, between duty and advantage, between the genuine maxims of an honest and magnanimous policy and the solid rewards of public prosperity and felicity. He went on to say, we ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right, which heaven itself has ordained. We ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven, the blessing of God, can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. Well, the second point about the nature of corporate repentance is this. The biblical method for corporate repentance is a solemn assembly. A solemn assembly. And here I want to draw directly from Richard Owen Roberts. His book on repentance is about the finest study on the subject that I know of. But he also wrote a separate little work where he looked particularly at the subject of solemn assemblies in the Bible. And I simply want to summarize his findings. There are no fewer than 12 revival movements in the Old Testament. And here when I use the word revival, I'm referring to a movement in which a group of God's people repent and turn back to God. Each of these 12 revival movements found in the Old Testament have four features in common. Four marks of every single one of these 12 revival movements. First, they all came after a tragic declension in faith and obedience towards God. So there was need for revival. Second, without a single exception, all twelve revivals came after some kind of judgment from God had gripped the attention of the people. So there was a a falling away, a wandering away, a turning away from God. There was a judgment from God of some fashion that gripped the attention of the people. And then third, all twelve of these revivals took place under the leadership of a leader who was burdened by the sin of the people. Every one of those revivals had a leader who was burdened by the sin of the people. There was a revival under Moses, and one under Samuel, and one under David. There was one under King Asa, and then Jehoshaphat, and then Jehoiada. There was a revival under Hezekiah, and then Josiah, and then Zerubbabel, and then under Ezra, and then under Nehemiah, and then right here under the prophet Joel. And these men all were leaders during different revivals, and all twelve of them were burdened by the sin they saw in the nation. And then the fourth characteristic, all twelve of those men called for a solemn assembly in which the people of God came together to repent together of their sin. So in our passages that we read from Joel, did you notice 
that there was a call for a solemn assembly. It was actually mentioned twice, both in Joel 1 and in Joel 2. Did you notice who was to come? Who was to come to this solemn gathering of the nation? Look at Joel 2, verses 15 and 16 again. Yeah. The elders are to gather. But you would assume that, right? But it's not just the elders. The horn is to be blown for all of Israel to come. Even the children are to come. Even the nursing infants are to be there. Joel even says that honeymoons need to be canceled. That newly married brides and bridegrooms are to leave their chambers and come. The whole nation is to come. And and when these assemblies were called 12 times in the Old Testament, these, these were not convenient for people. These were times when people couldn't just jump in their car and drive up the interstate. People had to travel great distances at a very slow pace, often missing weeks or even months of things they needed to do at home in order to gather with the rest of the nation. But the leader of the nation believed that it was worth all the hardship and all the inconvenience and all the difficulty to gather the people together for a solemn assembly of true repentance. It was not an easy thing. It was a difficult thing. And it showed real conviction. And it showed real determination when people from all over the country left their shops and left their farms and left their plows and appeared for the great assembly. Richard Owen Roberts in his study says this. He says, Not only were solemn assemblies a very common aspect in the revivals of the Bible, but they were a very important part of the life of believers in America during its early years. For a verification of this, one has only to consult the Sprague collection of early American pamphlets at the Widener Library of Harvard University. There will be found a large number of sermons that were preached at fast days and solemn assemblies that were frequently called and earnestly attended by American believers before the general decline of true Christianity in our land. Mount Hermon, I dare say that when we consider a city like Rocky Mount, we can say truthfully that she has many needs. More jobs? Absolutely. Less crime? Yes. Better gang prevention and crime prevention? Yes. Better governance? Sure. But here is what the city of Rocky Mount and every other community needs most of all. The very blessing of God. And God has given us a pattern to follow in how to seek it. A solemn assembly in which Christians gather together to repent together of their sin. Christians from all denominations. The disappearance of these assemblies has been a mark of our cultures falling away from God. The clearest parallel between the repentance of God's people in the Old Testament and the repentance of God's people today is in the local church. In the Old Testament, ancient Israel was known as God's people. In the New Testament, we as the church are known as God's people. 
And so like ancient Israel of old, we too need to regularly gather together to repent together. And so even on the local church level, we need to know what it is to repent together. When do we have our solemn assembly? Well, certainly we could call together. Uh, A solemn assembly, a special gathering for the purpose of repentance together as a church. But the reason I think you don't see a whole lot of that in the New Testament is that in the New Testament you see another kind of assembly happening. The regular assembling of God's people together for worship. And part of that worship was the practice of repenting together. When we come before God on Sunday morning or on Sunday night as a church family, we ought to come together confessing our sins and humbling ourselves before God. Yes, we are to do this as individuals, but we also should do this as a body. Every Sunday, we should be coming to the worship of God with repentance in our hearts. And yes, it is the responsibility of your leaders as a church to lead us in regular moments of repentance. Let me note two other points about corporate repentance. Third point is this. Corporate repentance includes individual repentance. Corporate repentance includes individual repentance. So so the idea of corporate repentance is that all of the individuals together participate in the repentance. So when a nation or a community or a church or a family repents together... It includes each person owning up to their own sinful contributions and confessing them before God. It includes each person humbling himself or herself before God. We cannot repent together as a body if we are not repenting individually and personally, each and every one of us. And then fourth, corporate repentance includes all of the aspects and steps of repentance we have already seen in our study. So you might be wondering, right, how does corporate repentance differ from the way an individual repents? And, And it only differs in the number of people involved, and perhaps in the fact that in corporate repentance, we take responsibility for the sins of the whole body. But the steps are all the same. We're to see our sin as a body, We're to feel the vileness of our sin. We are to grieve over the sin of our our church or our family or our nation. And then as a body, we are to confess our sin to God and plead for His forgiveness. We're to make restitution where necessary. And we are to resolve never to return to those sins again. Now in 1863, right in the middle of the Civil War, At the urging of the Senate, President Abraham Lincoln called for solemn assemblies to take place all over the Union and for there to be a day of humiliation, fasting, and repentance. I want to read for you Abraham Lincoln's proclamation. It's it's a little bit lengthy, but I want to suggest that it's, it's worth our time. It's worth our attention. He said, whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just governance of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and nations, 
has by a resolution requested the president to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as men to own their dependence upon God and upon His overruling power and to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assurance that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And insomuch as we know that by His divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of this civil war which now desolates the land may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. I'll just stop there and say, you hear what he's saying? He's saying, could it not be that this whole bloody war that we're in is the discipline of God upon us as a nation because we have fallen away from His truth? And should it not wake us up to our need to repent as a nation? We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our own hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. And intoxicated with, broken, with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. You imagine such words coming from a national leader today. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for His clemency and forgiveness. And now, therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the views of the Senate, I do by this my proclamation designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I do hereby request that all the people do abstain on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and instead unite at their several places of public worship and at their respective homes and keeping that day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of the religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. All this being done in sincerity and in truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teachings that the united cry of our nation will be heard on high and answered with blessings no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former and happy condition of unity and peace. And he goes on to talk about the seal and done at the city of Washington this 30th day of March in the year of our Lord, 1863, and of the independence of the United States the 87th year 
by the President Abraham Lincoln. How we should long for such proclamations to be made in our day and for God to put it in the heart of us as a nation and people everywhere to repent. In 1863, our nation was far more Christian than it is today. In fact, great revivals took place during the Civil War, both on the Union side and the Confederate side. There are amazing stories of how God used that devastating, bloody war to wake people up to things that really matter. But our society today is far more pluralistic. And we should pray that one day God might bring a revival to our land that would give people the hearts to believe in the true God and to humble themselves before Him and to repent. But even if our nation never again knows what it is to repent as a nation, surely God's people should know. What might we need to repent of as a church? What sins might be bringing God's discipline upon us so that our efforts and evangelism and missions and holiness and happiness are being frustrated? Why might God's heavy hand be upon us? What do we need to confess? Several times in the study of Revelation, we, in the study of repentance, we have referenced the book of Revelation. Because there he called on several local churches to repent. His calls were recorded in Scripture because churches everywhere are in danger of these same sins and need to repent of these sins. And so I want to close this study by asking you now turn to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And I want to just note some of the sins that we as a church may need to repent of in order to have the blessing of God. So Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, in Revelation 2, verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, the love of this church for God and the love of this church for one another was diminishing. And it was evident by their works. This church was no longer zealous for good works, zealous for the service of God, zealous for speaking His truth, zealous for serving one another. Mount Hermon, are we busy loving one another as we ought to be? Is our love for one another evident in our deeds? Is our love for God a passion burning in our chest? And is it evident in our actions and the choices we make and the priorities that shape our lives? Anytime we sense our love for God or our sense for one another declining in any way, we ought to repent. And we ought to pray for God to be merciful to us. We might also need to repent of false teaching. This was Jesus' message to the church in Pergamum over in verses 12 through 17. 
I won't read it now, but the false teaching was leading to immoral, permissive lifestyles. This church was holding to a doctrine that allowed the people to claim Jesus as Lord, even as they committed sexual immorality and other grievous sins. Mount Hermon, any time that we as a church begin to wander away from the Bible and sound teaching, any time that we begin to see that there is a disconnect between what is being taught in this church and what we're believing and what we find here in the pages of the Bible, we need to repent. Third, we might need to repent of tolerating sin. This is the message we see in Jesus' letter to the church in Thyatira, beginning in verse 18. It appears that there was a woman there who the Lord Jesus refers to her as Jezebel. She called herself a prophetess and she was leading people in this church into immorality. And the sin in this woman was obvious. She was hurting the body, but the church was being cowardly. This woman had such a charismatic personality, perhaps, or just for some reason had such a reputation in the community or or perhaps had power over people's lives. But for whatever reason, this church refused to stand up to her. They refused to practice church discipline and ultimately to remove this woman from the church if she would not repent. In Mount Hermon, we're told in that letter that we are not only guilty of the sins we commit, we're guilty of the sins we tolerate. That if we're not faithful in church discipline, if we allow church members to walk in obvious, blatant, unrepentant sin, our Savior will come against us and He will remove our light from us as a church. And so if we ever find ourselves being too cowardly to love each other through the practice of church discipline, we ought to repent. Number four, we might need to repent of dead works. Of dead works. This is what Jesus said to the church in Sardis at the beginning of Revelation 3. Jesus said to them, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And it goes on to say, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. The idea is that the church in Sardis was a very active church. This was a church with a reputation of being alive. This was a a happening church. This seemed to be a successful church. But Christ said this church was dead. Christ said they had lots of works, but their works were dead works because they weren't keeping what they had received from God. This was an unfaithful church. Mount Hermon, even if there are 10,000 people in this church, If we ever find that we're busy with this and busy with that and we're full of activity, but we're failing to be faithful to what God has actually called us to be and do, we must repent. Jesus said to the church in Sardis, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And so we must not put our Lord Jesus Christ to the test. If we ever find ourselves unfaithful to what the Word says a healthy church should be, we must repent. And then finally, a fifth reason we might need to repent would be lukewarmness. Lukewarmness. And we see this in the letter from Christ to the church in Laodicea, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 3. Mount Hermon, is this us? 
Have we become lukewarm? Jesus said to this church, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would be either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will, pit, I will spit you out of my mouth. Mount Hermon, we don't want to be a church spewed out. We don't want to be a church rejected by the Lord Jesus, found unuseful to Him. And so I ask again, have we lost our zeal? Have we lost our burden for souls that are on their way to hell? Does the glory of God no longer stagger us? Does God's love no longer overwhelm us the way it used to do? Could it be that our hearts have grown calloused? We're not cold. We're not rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. We're we're still coming to church. We're saying the right things. We're doing the right things. But there's no fire. Is that us? That's us, then we as a body ought to repent. Let me close with the words of Jesus that will be very familiar to you. But I want you to note that these were not the words of Jesus to a lost soul. These were the words of Jesus to a church that needed to repent. Jesus said, Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Repentance opens the door to the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ on us as a church. It is repentance that brings Christ near to us. And when he comes, he comes with love. He comes with power. He comes with blessing. And so may we, as a church, repent together. Now, what is that going to look like? It may mean some months when we have our prayer service together. We focus particularly on areas in our church where we need to repent. Certainly at members' meetings, our normal members' meetings, we're seeking to give some ways that we as a church need to to improve, things we can work on, things we ought to repent of. And then also from time to time in the morning service, in our prayers, um, I'll seek to lead us in confessing sin. Similarly to, to what I did this morning when we confessed together about sinful attitudes and sinful actions. But it can't be just words spoken from the pulpit. It must be sincere. It must be heartfelt in every one of us. We together as a church must humble ourselves and repent. Then we will have the sweet experience of the blessing of Christ. Let's pray.